Well, we are today going to continue doing what we were just doing, but it will feel a little different. What we have been doing for a good 20 minutes now is just marveling at the goodness of Jesus, right? Is he worthy? Yes, he is, right? We're leaning on his wonderful and everlasting arms. And then we marveled together a little before that at just that story, seeing him walking through Jerusalem, seeing him dying, seeing him rising and seeing him up now in the heavens reigning. We're marveling the glory of Jesus Christ. And we're going to continue doing that in a really different way now. We're about to dive into two Proverbs in the book of Ecclesiastes. And as we do, I want you to know that what we're looking at, when we behold wisdom together, and we say, wow, this, this sage thousands of years ago had insight into the human heart and, and had insight into this world around us that we even lack today. When we marvel at that, I want you to know we're marveling at Jesus Christ, the wise one, the one through whom wisdom comes. So all week I've been pouring over these two Proverbs and my own heart is just bursting with how much insight is in these two things. And and I wonder if the same thing's going to happen to you. We're going to dive in here and you're going to say, wow, I I did not realize all of this wisdom about this world around me and about my own heart. And as you do, we've got to realize, what does that teach us about our God? That there is a, a book here so full of wisdom that we can read and chew on and grow wise from. What's that say about God? Well, it says two things. It says he is very wise. Right? He's wise enough to write this stuff thousands of years ago. And it says that he loves to give wisdom away. Two things we emphasize a lot here at Cover. Our God is wise. Our God loves to give wisdom away to those who seek it. And you have come here seeking the word of God and seeking wisdom. And I pray that he gives it to you. As he does, though, we must remember we're not just getting pro tips for life here. We are peering into the wisdom of Jesus Christ. And that means something for those of you who are considering following Jesus. Uh, You will see this morning a glimpse of how good and wise he is. And if that leaves your heart marveling, I hope what it tells you is that this Jesus is worthy of all of your worship. This Jesus whose wisdom you're about to get a tiny little peek into. He is worthy of your whole life. He is worthy of all of your faith and all of your worship. And so my call to everyone before we even dive in is to look to this Jesus for forgiveness of sins, for lordship over our life, for wisdom for life, and for all things. For he's worthy of every last bit of it. Let's look together at Ecclesiastes 1.10 and Ecclesiastes 7.10. Two Proverbs toward the middle of our Bible that guard us against two forms of folly we might otherwise fall to, novelty and nostalgia. First in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 10, the preacher, the sage, says this about that new thing everyone is talking about. He says, Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. And then flipping the page to chapter 7, verse 10, guarding us against the opposite folly of nostalgia, of, of glorifying yesterday too much and longing for it too much. He says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. The words of the Lord. 
Through those two Proverbs, our Lord guards us against the twin follies of novelty and nostalgia. And here we are between sermon series, this sermon series on Genesis we're wrapping up and taking a break from, and soon we'll be starting a sermon series on Micah. It's a great time to dive into the wisdom literature. The, the Proverbs are like salt. You can put them, sprinkle them on anything, and it will make it taste better. Like if you ever just had a sea salt caramel and you just eat that thing, why are these massive grains of salt making my chocolate caramel taste better? How does that work, right? Salt makes everything taste better. And in the same way, the Proverbs make everything. They season everything with good wisdom. So here we are today, one week here, and then next week we'll look at one piece of revelation before we dive into Micah together. The book of Ecclesiastes is a unique book, very different from all the other books of the Bible. And here's one way that it is different. Most books of the Bible, the pieces make some sense on their own, but they make more sense when you put all the pieces together and consider the whole book. Uh, for instance, John 3.16, you can, you can gain a lot from that verse. Many of us have memorized it, right? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, you need very little knowledge of the death and resurrection of Jesus to get something out of that, right? But it becomes richer when you consider John's purpose of writing the book. The message of the book, he says, is that you might believe in Jesus Christ and by believing have life in his name. That's the message of the whole book. He wants you to believe in Jesus Christ and by believing have life in, his, in Jesus' name. Now that sheds a little more light on John 3.16, doesn't it? Why did John say that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life? Because that's the point of the whole book. That's what he wants in the whole book. That's why we memorize that verse and put so much focus on it. So John 3.16 works on its own, but it is richer and sweeter when you take it into the context of the whole book. Most of the books of the Bible work this way. Ecclesiastes is sort of an exaggerated version of that. With Ecclesiastes, if you take any message in light of the message of the whole book, it makes sense. But the pieces on their own can be downright confusing sometimes if you do not take them through the message of the whole book. So then before we really unpack those Proverbs, I need to tell you the message of the whole book of Ecclesiastes so that we can see what we're dealing with here. Ecclesiastes has in it two voices. It was probably written by one person. We don't really know who wrote it, but there are two voices in it. One voice speaks for almost all of the book. He is called the preacher. Uh, this preacher is either Solomon, probably, or some fictitious character who is a lot like Solomon, and he is preaching somewhere, either a series of messages or one big, long message that is most of the book of Ecclesiastes, except for the first verse and the last six verses. He's doing this exercise. He is a very wise man, a very powerful man. He is king in Israel. No one can stop him. He basically gets everything he wants. If he wants to learn something, he can learn it. If he wants to have something, he can have it. If he wants this to happen, it happens. He gets whatever he wants. And so he searches everywhere under the sun for meaning and happiness. He says, what was I made for? I'm going to go find it. You know, that quest for meaning that so many go on. He goes on it. And he shorts himself nothing. He gets whatever he wants. And what he keeps finding is that no matter where he looks, he does not find lasting happiness there. He grows in wisdom and surpasses everyone before him in wisdom. And it doesn't satisfy him. 
And then he delights himself with the pleasures of women illicitly, and it doesn't satisfy him. And then he gains all sorts of riches and plants this wonderful garden, and it doesn't satisfy him. In the end, he concludes that it's better to live in wisdom than in foolishness, because you'll have a better time if you do it right, so go ahead and do it right. But no matter what you do, life is full of injustice. It's really hard. All the good things in life fade, and then you die. And that happens whether you're wise or a fool. And so his end conclusion is that there is no lasting happiness or meaning to be found under the sun. Now he's put a limit on himself in this exercise. He is searching everywhere under the sun for meaning and happiness. So I keep saying under the sun. So he's willing to look all around the earth for meaning and happiness and under every rock for meaning and happiness. But there's one place that he won't allow himself to look, one direction he won't look up. So without looking up to God, there is no meaning and no lasting happiness to be found in this world. That's his message. He uses the word picture of a vapor or a mist to tell us this. If you're open to chapter 1 right now, you'll see in verse 2 either the word vanity or meaningless or something like that repeated a few times. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. That is literally, that word is vapor or mist. It's a word picture. A vapor of vapors. Everything is a vapor. A mystifying mist. Everything is a mist. That's what the word picture there is. And it's got two meanings. On one hand, whatever the good thing is that you have, it is going to fade away like the morning mist over the lake. And on the other hand, there are so many things in life that we just can't grab a hold of and wrap our minds around. You try to figure out some of the riddles in life, and it's like walking through a cloud and trying to find your way around. Like, what is going on here? So, so on one hand, life is like walking through a mist, and you can't tell what's going on, and you can't really grab things. And on the other hand, the good things in life are like a vapor or a mist in that they go away, and they're gone. And this is the preacher's message. Without the Lord in your life. There is no meaning, no lasting happiness that one can find. Everything fades away. Then the writer of the book gives us six more verses in which he answers the riddle that the preacher has been trying to solve. He says, these words are wise. They they come from God. They're good. You should hear them. But but what is the answer? Where do you find lasting happiness? Where do you find meaning? And he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Here it is. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. So you won't find lasting happiness in riches. And you won't find lasting happiness in power. And you won't find lasting happiness in sex or in marriage, or you don't find it anywhere, but you will find it if you do what you were made to do. You weren't made for those things. You were made to worship God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if you're looking to Him with a trembling reverence in your heart that says, you are great and mighty, well, there's a happiness that will last forever because He will not fade. 
And if you live your life according to his ways, through his gospel, trusting in his son, Jesus, and then walking according to his commands in your life, then you've got a life that's built on a solid rock. Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine and does them is like the one that built their house on the rock and the winds came and the rains came and the house did not fall because it was built on a rock. If you want things to last, follow the Lord's commands. So, There's the whole book, and it's a profound message, isn't it? Find lasting happiness, find meaning in life by living in worship of God and following his ways. Don't look anywhere else for it. Now, the reason the book is hard to understand is because most of the book is telling us about places we should not look, right? One party's looking at riches, and the message is don't look at riches, but he doesn't tell you where to look. And these two Proverbs we're looking at today tell us two places not to look for that happiness. So it's a negative message in both of them. Don't do this, don't do that. But let's take it in light of the whole book. What should we do? We should fear God and keep his commands. So these two places we should not look for happiness or meaning are are novelty, that is the cool new thing, or nostalgia, that is the good old days. We will not find lasting happiness in either of those. Let's look at the two of them one at a time, and then we'll apply their meaning to many different areas in life together. Let's start with one, chapter one, verse 10. I'll read it again. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. His point is that the cool new thing everyone is talking about is not actually new, and it will not bring lasting happiness or meaning to our lives. Now, at first hearing, we might disagree with him, right? I mean, show that sage an iPhone and ask him if that's new, right? But if we think about it for a little bit, what what are we trying to do on these phones? communicate with people, look at images, hear stories and tell stories, find a group that we can be part of and be affirmed by that group. Essentially, everything that our ancestors did around a campfire after dinner, we are trying to do on our phones after dinner. Nothing is really new. It has been in the ages before us. So it feels new, and they will make it look new, and we will wait in line outside the Apple store to get the new one when the new one comes out, but there's really nothing new under the sun. We are trying to do the same things over and over, just as we have done in the ages before us. Now, these Proverbs are, it says later, arranged with great care, and that means that in the nearby Proverbs, sometimes you can find some insight that sheds some light on this one, and that happens a few reasons, a few places here. Uh, we might ask, why do we keep falling for the new thing? Like, wh- why does that guy wait in line all night to get an iPhone 4, and then next year he waits in line all night with an iPhone 4 in his pocket to get an iPhone 5. And like, why do we do that, right? Well, we get some answers in the nearby Proverbs. Verse 11 tells us one reason that we keep falling for novelty. He just says, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things yet to be among those who come after. 
In other words, we forget what things used to be like, and the people after us will forget what this used to be like. We, we keep thinking that the new thing is new because we forgot that it was there in the ages before us. We forgot what those days were like. We forgot that the iPhone 4 didn't bring us any happiness, and so we're back for the iPhone 5. We keep forgetting what the past was like, and so we think that tomorrow will be better. This is actually true on a, a, a cosmic and eternal scale. When we think about all of the things that we want from our phones, for instance, whatever it is that might drive you back to it, especially if you're hooked on it, what it is that's pulling you there, whatever it is, I bet it was something that Adam had in the garden when he walked with God in the cool of the day. Do you want somebody who loves you to talk to you? Is that why you keep going back to your phone? And yet there was Adam walking and talking with the Lord of hosts in the ages before us. Do you want something wonderful to behold that makes you say, wow, that was awesome? Well, there was Adam in the ages before us walking and talking and looking at the face of God saying, wow, that was something. Or maybe it's, it's a sense of acceptance into a community. Maybe enough people liked your post or your photos, and that makes you happy, and that's what keeps driving you back to it. Well, there was Adam in the garden walking and talking with God as an accepted and loved son. Whatever it was that may be driving you back to the new thing, thinking that you'll find happiness in the new thing, Friends, our ancestor had it when he walked with God in the ages before us. But we have forgotten that, haven't we? There's no remembrance of the things before us. And so instead, we're looking forward at tomorrow's big thing, thinking that it will make us happy, when it will make us happy for a few moments, and then the happiness will fade. So verse 11 sheds a little light on it in that way. In the same way, the second half of verse 8 sheds some light on this proverb. Why do we keep thinking the new thing is awesome and new? Well, here's part of why. Because, this is the second half, not the first half of verse 8, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Basic idea is, now, no matter how many cool things you see, you're going to want to see one more. You're never satisfied. No matter how much great music you hear, you're going to want to hear another song. Your ear is never satisfied. Spotify knows that. They'll get another 10 bucks out of you next month because you're not going to be satisfied with what you heard this month, right? This is part of why we keep going for the new thing, thinking that it's going to make us happy because our eyes and ears, our hearts are never satisfied with what we had. Why did that guy, back in the days when we waited outside the Apple store for our iPhones, why did that guy wait for an iPhone 5 when he had an iPhone 4 in his pocket? Because the iPhone 4 didn't make him happy. His eye was not satisfied with seeing. His ear was not satisfied with hearing. Why is it that we are so excited about the new season of the show or the new album that so-and-so is dropping? Why does that make us so excited? Besides the fact that it's hyped up in culture, well, because the last season of the show didn't satisfy us. And because the last album was fun for a while, but it didn't satisfy us. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, and the ear is not satisfied with hearing. And so when the new thing comes, we say together, this, 
this will be the one. This one is new. So that proverb sheds a little light on this one as well. So the point of the first proverb then is that the cool new thing everyone is talking about is not really new. So don't set your heart on it for happiness. The happiness that it will bring you, it's real, but it's fleeting. The best you can do is receive a good gift from God, thank him for it, and be ready to let go of it when it flies away because it will fly away. So there's the first proverb. Guard your heart against novelty. The cool new thing will not make you as happy as you think it will. Let's move to chapter 7, verse 10. I put these two together like this. You can probably sense because the two are almost opposite sides of the same coin. Two opposite opposing follies we might fall into. Chapter 7, verse 10 says, Say not, oh, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. And his point is that nursing a desire for the good old days is foolish and won't make you happy. For the very simple and plain and painful reason that the old days are gone. Whatever it was you had and you lost is lost. And so pointing your heart back to it over and over again can only make you unhappy as you long for what you do not have. The only thing perhaps more foolish than setting your heart on the new thing which will pass away is setting your heart on the old thing that has already passed away. At least the person taken with tomorrow will have a few moments of happiness if they get the thing and the thing makes them happy before the happiness fades. But the person who has given their heart to yesterday and what is gone will never be happy because they have already lost the thing that they love. And so the sage says, friends, don't do that. It's not wise. It's not a recipe for you. It's not from wisdom that you ask that. It's not from wisdom that you set your heart on what once was but is now gone. Now, as we first hear him, we might try to disagree with him here as well. Well, hang on. Hang on there, preacher. Sometimes the old days really were better, right? I mean, things get better and they get worse and good things come and they go. And can't yesterday be better than today? Why can't I ask that? And it's true, sometimes things really do get better and worse over time. For instance, the people in the Ukraine right now really can say it was better before Russia invaded, right? It, things got worse, drastically worse when Russia invaded. So, so what is this sage guarding us against then? Well, you can see in the words, if you look closely, it's not a statement, the old days were better, what we used to have was better. It's a grumbling question. Why were the old days better than these? You see the differences? It's one thing to know that you had a good thing and lost it. It's another thing to grumble to your friends about it. It's another thing to grumble up to the Lord and say, oh God, why is it this way? Why, why has baseball become all about statistics? Oh man, why has this been ruined? Why, why, are the, why is the new version of the phone not as good as the old version of the phone? To grumble about the past and its loss. That's where the folly is. That's where the nostalgic heart goes wrong. So what do the wise do? Well, the wise 
receive a good thing from God, and then it goes away, and they grieve because it was a good thing, and then they move on. They say, thanks be to God who gave a good gift. They weep at its passing if it was a big thing, and they must grieve. And then they move on. They fear God, and they keep His commands. The foolish nurse in their hearts a never-ending desire to see the foregone thing come back. Oh, the old days. Oh, the good old days. Oh, the old days. And that desire is never fulfilled because the old thing is gone. Just like in the last proverb, some of the nearby Proverbs can shed some light on this one. Why, why do we think that longing for what is gone will make us happy? Well, some of it is because of what he said in chapter 1. There's no remembrance of former days. We tend to forget the past. That's part of our foolishness in our hearts. We forget the past. And so sometimes you can go through hard times and you look back on those better days and it's tempting to kind of make them out to be better than they really were, isn't it? It's tempting to forget how hard the thing really was. We might even, if I can touch on what would be a really hard topic for someone actually going through it, if you were to sit down perhaps with a refugee from the Ukraine, and we would all agree things were better before Russia invaded there, right? You talk long enough, and then they might begin to say, well, yeah, things were better, but the truth is, I didn't know how I was going to pay my bills, and I was really stressed, and my wife and I fought a lot. Yeah, things were better, but they were actually still really hard before the hard times came. But there is something about a hard thing coming that makes you look back on the days past and sort of idealize them and gloss over the flaws and forget how hard they really were. This is one reason we can fixate on the past and not be willing to let it go because we don't quite remember it the way it was. We remember it a little better than it was. Uh, baseball would be a good example, right? Uh, baseball is just filled with statistics today, and for a lot of people, it's just like, man, it's all number crunching and it's no bat swinging. What's going on? Man, I want to go back to the 90s, back when baseball was good. Well, the truth is, in the 90s, there was a strike and an entire season without baseball. Like, we had our problems in the 90s as well, right? But you forget about that when time moves on. So that old proverb sheds lights on this one. There's no remembrance of the former days because we forget what the past was like. Sometimes we sort of idealize it and look at it through rose-colored glasses. Verse 9 also sheds some light on this one. Look at 7-9 with me. They may seem unrelated, but they are close cousins. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Now, why would he put that proverb right before verse 10 about nostalgia? It says he arranged it with great care, so he's got a reason for doing that. Well, the reason is because anger and nostalgia are very close cousins. Anger is how our flesh reacts when something we love is taken from us or when it is threatened. It's natural to get angry. That's what our flesh wants to do. And, and what is the nostalgic heart doing? It's looking back on something that was taken from you. And so where is that going to lead? Anger. Anger and nostalgia tend to 
go together. Because what you love is lost. And there is a part of you that wants to have it back. And another part of you that knows I will never have it back again. And so the sage puts the two proverbs next to each other. Be not quick to become angry. Anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. The two go hand in hand. Anger and nostalgia are close, close cousins. So there is no lasting happiness. In fact, there is no happiness at all in looking back on what was lost and setting our hearts upon it. Instead, what must we do? Well, again, we must grieve what we have lost, if you have lost a thing. It's good to grieve before God. Give that grief up to Him. We must walk away from anger, which lodges in the hearts of fools. And we must say, God, you give a good gift, and I let go of it. I will live in worship of God, and I will walk according to his ways. There I will find my happiness. Whatever it is you lost, it's gone. But the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you want lasting happiness. You want meaning in your life. Look to the Lord for happiness. So there's Ecclesiastes 7.10, a guard against nostalgia. So we take those through the bigger meaning of the book, bigger meaning of the book of Ecclesiastes. You weren't made for the past. You weren't made for the cool new thing. You were made to live in worship of Jesus Christ. So don't set your heart on yesterday and don't set your heart on 20 minutes from now and the cool thing that is coming. Set your heart on Jesus Christ who will not fade and will not let you down. That's the point of these two Proverbs. Only worshiping God can make you happy. Okay, we got it so far? Everybody with me? Yeah? All right, let's take that and let's apply that to life. If time allows, I want to apply it to three areas. Our personal lives. Uh, It actually matters a lot in politics. Those are both big forces in politics. We'll talk about that. And then finally, we'll apply it to ourselves as a church body. How do we make sure we don't fall to either of those follies as a church? So most of the things I've talked about so far have been personal. We'll go into personal application. We've talked about technology a lot. You probably get the message there. Whatever Apple announces and whatever Facebook does with Meta or whatever it is they're trying to do now, it's not going to make you happy. It's not going to give you lasting happiness. Only worshiping God will make you happy in that way. The new season of the thing, wherever sports go next, it won't make you happy. Uh, Let's think about a few personal things. There are some of us who can look at a good gift we had and we we lost. And we can say, it really was better when I had that thing. That, That job was a good job. I was happier when I had that job. God forbid some of us have lost spouses to death. I don't blame you one ounce if you say, I was happier when she was alive. I was happier when he was alive. Yeah, I bet you were. I would, be, I would be sad too. We look back and we've lost something good. Two temptations before us. One, to grumble and say, ah, oh, why, did, why did I have to lose the job? Why did I have to move out of that city that I loved? Man, why, why did the Lord have to take her away? Man, uh, there's the one. And the other is thinking, well, I lost the one thing. But here's a new thing. Right? I lost her. Ooh, but here's her. She will make me happy. Ooh, I lost that job. Ooh, but this job, this job will make me happy. 
And what, is, what does the sage say? No, none of that will bring lasting happiness. Fear God and keep his commands. There's your lasting happiness. Some of us go through lives just waiting for the next thing to come tomorrow. Doesn't it just kind of sound like a, a good Western life to think, oh man, when I graduate school, then, then I'm really going to be happy. And then it's, oh, when I get that job, then I'm going to be happy. No, no, when I get promoted, then finally I will be on my own two feet and I will be happy. No, when I get married, then finally happiness will be, no, when I have kids, right, then, when the Lord gives kids, then, then I'll be happy. No, when the, when the kids graduate, then we will be happy. No, when the kids get jobs, then, then we will be happy. No, when the kids give us grandkids, then we will be happy. What are we doing? Looking to the next thing to make us happy. And why are we doing that? Because the last thing didn't make us happy. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. The ear is not satisfied with hearing. No, only a life in worship of God Almighty can make us happy in a lasting way. So instead, we don't look forward to the day when the kids give us grandkids or when we, whatever the next thing is, wherever you are in life. What are we looking for? We're looking for Jesus Christ to come back. Then I will be happy, right? Yes, he comes back in glory and splendor, a double-edged sword from his mouth. And these eyes that are not satisfied with seeing, they will be satisfied in what they see when he comes back. So yeah, fear God and keep his commands. That is what brings happiness. Not the old thing, not the new thing. So then, if that's the way to look at life, what do you do with all these good gifts? Like, what, what do you do? With, where did I put mine? What do you do if you have a, a phone that does cool stuff? Or if God gave you a spouse and you're really happy? How do you receive a gift like that without falling to some of this folly? Well, we have to look at our gifts that we have as from God, undeserved, and fleeting. Every gift you have on this earth is from God, it's undeserved, and it's fleeting. If you're in a good marriage, you're really enjoying marriage, your spouse is a gift from God. God gave you that spouse. It's a gift you, you didn't deserve, but God's, here you go anyway, right? Undeserved gift. And here's the hard part that stings. It's a gift that doesn't last forever. And so we look to God and we say, God, thank you. You're given a good gift. And then we prepare our hearts to let go when he takes the gift away. This is the only way we can enjoy God's good gifts here on earth. Sometimes when I'm feeling really bold, I advise engaged couples to go to a funeral while they're engaged. Go to a funeral of an older couple where one of them, one of them passed first. We went to a few of these, some of us as a church. Why? Because you grow wise when you, when you st sit there, stand there next to your bride and someone you know sits in the chair grieving their spouse and the other one is in the casket. Then a young engaged couple can look and see, okay, if God answers our prayers, here's where this is headed. Okay, if you got that in your heart, nobody wants to hear that, right? It's the most popular message in the world right there. You got that in your heart, though. Now 
you are ready to receive one another as gifts from God and say, okay, this thing isn't going to last forever, but we are going to make the most of it to the glory of God while we have it. Because God's gifts are good, they're undeserved, and they're fleeting. That's how gifts work in this world. And so when we get a new thing, we say, thank you, God. I will be ready to let go of it when you take it from me. And when we lose something we love, we grieve to God, and we say, God, you give and you take away. Blessed be your name. This is something what it means to live in the fear of God when he gives good gifts to us. So here's what it means for our personal lives. Let me shift gears a little bit. We'll talk about what's going on in the political world right now. Uh, Because these two forces, novelty and nostalgia, they are strong in Western politics. And you need to be wise to them and aware of them whenever an election cycle comes around. So we'll get get a little less emotional here for a moment, just talk about practical things. So one thing that tends to happen in stable Western democracies is two groups will start to form. One group that champions change— and they're typically called the progressives. They see the way society is. They say, we could do better, let's change things. And then another group that looks around and says, hey, we have a good thing here, let's protect it. And so they focus on conserving the good thing that we have, and they're typically called the conservatives. And so you get a progressive party and a conservative party in most stable and Western democracies. So let's think about what both of them are going for here. There may be any kind of issues on the table, but typically one group is going to be like, let's change it, woo, something new. And the other group is going to be like, no, 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 let's keep it the same, right? We got a good thing, let's not mess with what we have. Now, today that would look like the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, right? One that is focused on changing as much as we can, and one that is focused on protecting as many good things as we have. At different points in history, we may need more change than we need staying the same, or, you know, different times in history, a different one may be correct, but those two forces are always going to be there. Now, if you're the guy sitting in an office at a political place, and you're trying to win an election, you're strategizing, you got all these people you want to energize to vote for you, and your party's big message is, let's change things, one of the forces that you're going to want to use is novelty, right? A new thing is coming, and when it comes, our nation's going to do great, right? The next big thing is going to save our country. And so we get campaign slogans like 2008, change we can believe in, right? How many got excited because we can believe in the change that this candidate is going to bring? And then President Obama won on that campaign. He spent eight years in office, and then when he left office, his followers were disappointed because the new thing didn't really save the country. Things really weren't better for the people who counted on them getting better when the new thing happened. Novelty novelty doesn't help us in politics either, but it will be marketed to you, the new thing, the new thing, the new thing. You have to be wise to it and say, no, the best I can hope out of a candidate is they might make things a little bit better. The new thing isn't going to save us as a country. The same will happen on the right as well. No matter what the issue is, no matter what's going on, uh, for a party that is trying to preserve the good things in our country— One of the really powerful forces of the heart that they know will speak to you is the good old days. Nostalgia, right? Bring back the golden era. Or 
make America great again. Right? You see in the logic here? It's a call to look back on yesterday, to groan, why were the old days better than these? Oh, let's get a new person in office, right? Doesn't work, does it? Now, four years later, and those of us that bought into that are disappointed, unhappy, even angry. Why? Because we gave our hearts to the thought that the old days might come back when the old days are gone. The best we can hope for is that a candidate might make things a little bit better than they are now. That's a realistic expectation. That's all we can get. So what do we do? Well, we guard against novelty and we guard against nostalgia. Even if a candidate we like starts going into that stuff, we say, well, I'm going to tune out for a little bit because this is nostalgia and I'm not going to tune into it. You look at the changes that are on the table. You evaluate them against the Bible. And if the Bible finds them wanting, you oppose them. And if the Bible says we need to make this change, then you vote to make the change. We just voted, I was a small part of it, but a number of people just voted in the state house to change the abortion laws in Indiana. We needed a new law in Indiana that protected the unborn. That was a biblical change. So it was all about that. A whole lot of changes on the table that the Bible finds wanting, aren't there? We've got to vote against those. But along the way, we've got to know there's a voice on each side saying the new thing, the new thing, or the old days, the old days, the old days. We've got to shut those out and say, no, no, no. I will vote in line with the Bible, not in line with my novelty, not in line with the nostalgia in my heart. So there's how it speaks to politics there. Let's move to application as a church. How could we as a church... Avoid falling into novelty and avoid falling into nostalgia. This is important because the truth is most churches have fallen to one or the other. You go to a church that has only the newest style of music, nothing but the new stuff, right? Nothing that's written more than three years ago, right? A whole bunch of songs you don't even recognize because it's all, everything is new. And then the preacher comes out and he does something really unexpected and and new. And then next thing you know, everybody's kind of breaking off into a house church because house churches are the new thing now, right? And you're you're seeing a church that has given itself to to novelty and to thinking that the new thing is going to fix the church, right? And to thinking that we have finally figured out how to do church and we don't need anything that came before us we don't need any of that old wisdom that's really not that different from the guy who waited in line outside the apple store to buy the new iphone it's a hope that the new thing is really going to change things that's novelty now i don't expect that to happen here that's not really on our hearts here no we've got a respect for our heritage here and so i'm not concerned too much about that There is another force, though, that we must be on guard against, and that is nostalgia. It it comes up, we focus on it in two ways. One, sometimes churches will wish that the world had not changed. Some of us in this room like 40 years ago's world better than we like right now's world. I know I like five years ago's world a whole lot more than I like right now's world. I bet all of us would say that, right? And it is possible for a church to say, well, we wish things hadn't changed out there. And so we're just going to kind of pretend like 
they haven't. We're going to pretend like COVID never happened. We're just going to kind of go on and pretend the world is the same. We're going to pretend like the folks out there are just like we wish they were and door-to-door evangelism still worked and all the old ways we used to do ministry still worked because I sure wish that stuff still worked. So we're going to pretend like it still worked and not make any kind of changes that we need to make in order to reach people for Jesus Christ. This is one reason why I'm so glad uh, our kids workers, some of you don't know this, but our kids workers just did a really brave thing, right? It's possible to just want the things that used to work to keep working. Um, we recently got all the leaders in our kids ministry together and we looked at VBS together. I, mean, we, I love VBS. It's like my favorite time of the year. And it used to really work. And so we just kind of put it in front of everybody and, and we just asked the question, is it working? Can we make it work or do we need to do something different, right? And I mean, this is the room of like the six people in our church that love VBS the most. And we're looking around and we're batting it around and we're saying, well, the way the world is now, kids are busy in the summer, they're going off to baseball camp. Maybe if you have a lot of momentum, you can keep it going, but trying to build a VBS doesn't work anymore. It's not going to work in this world. We had to do something different, right? And so I was so proud of them. I didn't tell them that they came to that conclusion and are so happy to see it because here is an instance of us saying we love the old thing, but we love Jesus more. And so we're going to find something that works for him, that fears him and keeps his commands, something that reaches children for Jesus, something that builds up children for Jesus, because that's why we do this stuff, right? Because we fear God and we keep his commands and we want children to grow in Christ. VBS isn't about VBS. It's not about the good old days. It's about reaching children for Jesus. It's about growing them in Christ. And so here are these brave workers that say, well, uh, I'm ready to give up something I love to try something new so that we can reach children for Jesus. And man, that's when you've got a church that's ready to grow. That's when you get a church that's ready to do incredible things. Some of you were there at that meeting. I just want to commend you for how, just how awesome everybody was in those meetings. But I hope you see the point, all of you. Uh, the point of all these individual ministries that we do is not for them to be there, right? And, and if the Lord takes them away and they don't work, we don't hang on to them and say, oh, the old days were so much better. We let go of what the Lord takes away. We fear him, we keep his commands, which means we get back to the Great Commission. We make disciples, we train disciples, we send disciples. If the Lord takes a beloved ministry away, that, that's what we do. I'll praise God for that. The other way that uh, churches can fall to nostalgia is when there are good days in the past, and then those days fade and hard times come on the church. Now, this is not the world changing out there, but things change in the church. And you can get to where all of your energy is put into getting back to the good old days, right? We just want it to be like it was before. We want it to be that way again. And it's sometimes not even particularly we want the growth and the success in our mission that we had in those days. But sometimes it's very particular things about that era that we just miss and we love. And the Lord says... If I give and I take away, then I give and I take away, right? And, and so that means our energy 
is not put toward, now some of you don't know this about our history, we had a golden era like that in our church, didn't we? We actually had two or three, and we lost all three of them, and then we had a little bit of, of growth and some momentum grow the first year that I was here before COVID, and COVID came and took all of that away, and it's so easy to look back and say, man, we just got to get back to how things were before COVID, or we just got to get back to how things were when we were building that building over there. Those were the good days. Now, I want you to know our mission is not to do either one of those things. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus, train disciples of Jesus, and send out disciples of Jesus. That is our fearing God and keeping his commands. We take that as his command from the Great Commission. And so that means whatever we're going through, our energy is not going backward. Our energy is going forward into whatever God has next for us. You see the difference? I'm hearing some amens. I think we see the difference here, don't we? Yeah. So, so we're receiving that mission from him, and we were saying, whatever you give us, whatever you take away from us, we're going to make disciples of Jesus. That's what we do. Now, a church that does that, a church that says, we are ready to worship God with trembling hearts, come what may. We are ready to make disciples of Jesus come what may. Now there's a church with greatness in it, right? You want to make Calvary great. I know some of you want to make Calvary great. Worship God with all you got. Get in on his mission. Make, train, and send disciples of Jesus. Let go of any part of your heart that thinks that the new thing will save us. It won't. Let go of that part of your heart that says, oh, I just want the good old days back. Now, thank God for the good old days, and they're gone. And let's together fear God and keep his commands. Church, that's what will make Calvary great. Yeah. All right. Let's pray now, and let's ask the Lord for that.